Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global. That is our primary web portal. Gives you more information and links about the show. You can also figure out how to get into our Mukana system, which is the system that allows you to ask questions for our panelists to deal with. Today, our second hour topic, we're going to be talking about camera rigging. And so we'll start with the basics and we'll talk about basic devices like phone rigs and things like that, all the way up to the larger things like jib rigging and stuff like that. Any question about how to put your camera kit together out in the field to get done what you need to get done, that's what we'll be talking about in our second hour today. This is the first hour. However, Mitch, what's our first question from our producers for today? Thank you, Bill. Uh, first in, John Preto, who's right here on our panel. Wave to the people, John. Uh, he's in Las Vegas, and he's here uh, asking this question. Update on mid-journey from yesterday's mid-journey's office hours with CEO David Holtz. Go ahead, Mitch. Take it away. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Take it away. Every Wednesday, David Holtz does a, after he calls it, they call it after hours, from noon to whenever he's done answering questions. It, it, it's really interesting because he, he'll go on for about 15 minutes and he'll go through his list of stuff. And then he answers questions for hours afterwards. And he's got more transparency than other, any other CEO that I've ever seen. And boy, did he go through a laundry list of stuff yesterday that I wanted to share with everybody. Uh, Alex mentioned in the pre-show, he's they, they do have in-painting now, which allows you to render additional um, diffusions within one canvas. Uh, which is a great, great feature. So what he announced is version six is coming soon, probably next month. So version six is is loaded with a bunch of new features, higher resolution, 2048 by 2048, uh, smarter natural language processing. So the prompt engineering is gonna be, is gonna be upgraded. Uh, more control over the variations, uh, improved hand generation, hands and feet will be improved as it was from version four to version five. Uh, what they're working on and what he's claiming before the end of the year is both 3D and video uh, before the end of the year and video on 3D. So those are things that they have working internally. Uh, and they've got they've got some really great stuff coming. Uh, Alex, you wanted to add some stuff? I just, you know, all I was going to say is that I, I started playing with the infill last night and it, it's just um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, of course, I didn't do anything serious because it's not what I do when I test things. But um, I, I really, um, you know, I, I started playing with it. And what you can do with the infill, it for, took me a minute to figure it out. But essentially what you um, what you end up doing is you render something, you give it a prompt. And then you can select an area. And now at first I thought I had to put the whole prompt in because it kind of repastes the prompt in, which is a little confusing. Um, and But I realized I didn't have to do that. I, I could just simply type in what I want, what I wanted to add, what I wanted to, uh, you know, to, to add to it. So let me see if I can, um, I'm having a hard time with the, uh, there we go. I was trying to pull up a preview here and it was, so, I mean, to give you, again, a, an absurd example, um, Let's see here if I can do this um, comfortably. Uh, let's see, two. Do you see the street here? There we go. Yeah. There we go. Just so I, so I just said, you know, this was like a dark, uh, you know, dark street scene, neon lights, wet street. Like that's all I said. And I got this image 
out of it. And then I said, I want, I selected an area in here and I said, I want an angry octopus. So I ended up with an angry octopus that was, that was very angry, but you can see that it didn't change this outer area. And then I said, give the angry octopus a uh, tribal tattoo. And I got that. So it did change the, to, to get the, ta- the, the tattoo in there. It did change the octopus a little bit. There were a couple other ones that didn't change it as much, but, but you can see how you can iteratively add things to it. Um, in, in my case, a very absurd way, but, um, but you can see how you can simply add things to what you're doing, which is unbelievable. Like the, the, now you're going to be able to say, I want a scene. You get the scene where you want it. Now put a car over here, put a light switch over here, put a man standing over here, you know, and you can just start, you know, building it. And again, I don't, I don't think that the immediate impact is really on actual production, but what it's incredible for is concepts. So I want to show someone what, and I, I was talking to um, someone that works on some of the stuff and they were talking about, the fact that as a supervisor, if you're a, if you're an art supervisor, you know, art director or, or, or a visual effects supervisor, sometimes it's just really hard to explain to people what you want. You know, like, oh, I want this and I can't, I, I can, you have a picture in your head, but you can't quite get it down. And if you can't draw really well, then it becomes hard. And they were talking about the fact that it's easier to just go into mid journey, build something that is close to what you want and then hand it to the artist and say, it's like this, but change these things. And this is going to make that even easier. It's, it's pretty exciting. Alex, uh, let's see, Mitchell wanted to get into this. Mitchell? Yeah, Alex, thanks for that octopus. I'm going to have dreams about that for a while. Um, <laughs> I was afraid to bring it up. I was or... like, there's, there's some bad dreams there. Yeah, exactly. Um, how, do you, um, how do you save out, uh, if, for, for example, if they're going to do video, 3D video, how do you save it out of mid-journey to something you can bring into a, a video edit or whatever? Uh, it'll probably export out as an MP4 is my guess. Like it'll be some kind of, you know, it'll just be some kind of basic packaging. Um, so with the video, that's what people have been doing. The other things that saw that sort video out are sending out MP4s. So it's not going to be super high quality. Again, we're still in the, this is a fun toy, um, kind of mode, but it won't be a fun toy forever. That's why there's a big strike going on. (laughs) So, so that, you know, it's, it's, it's tightening up you know, the, the rate at which it is improving is dramatic. And at some point, a small film with that character in there probably will be accessible to your average 17-year-old. So how many uh, amazing little films will we get out of this well, new technology? It's amazing. Yeah, I, I really think that the, the danger to Hollywood is not that they're going to replace Hollywood films with AI. The danger is that 17-year-olds are going to build videos that, other, that everybody else wants to just watch that don't have to be as good as Hollywood, that didn't cost anything to make. Like they, they're, they're, I think that they're thinking about this all wrong in the sense that they're worried about them taking, you know, it, the writers have a hard time coming up with good scripts, let alone AI. Um, you know, so I think it's a long way away from, I mean, if you feel like at how many movies a year have actually good scripts, it's probably 10, you know, maybe 15. Um, and so, so the thing is, is those, the, and, and that's with an incredible set of teams. And that's what I mean by that is standing over it. You very quickly, as soon as you get to independent film or smaller TV, you realize how fast scripts drop off, you know, as far as quality goes, because there's just not enough people to do it. So I think the chat, that, that chat GPT is probably not really the thing that's going to, or, or mid journey is really going to threaten Hollywood other than the sense that anybody can create something that's enjoyable. That's the YouTube generation, right? That, that all of these things are being created that people enjoy that didn't cost a lot of money to make. That's a super dangerous thing for established media. 
Yeah, and it reminds me of when YouTube uh, suddenly, people were all doing all sorts of training videos, and we had tons that were really poorly constructed. And for me, poorly constructed as you've been watching, because it promised you uh, how to fix this problem in your software or something. And three minutes later, they were still doing promo or something other than giving you the information you were actually looking for. So you got sick and tired of going to that service to find an answer because it was so hard to curate what was good versus the dreck that just came pouring out. And I think there will be a period for this with these things like mid-journey where we'll get a lot of dreck at first. Hopefully then it'll settle in like it did with typesetting and things like that. And people who are just playing with it and doing a bad job of it will start mm -hmm. to recede. And the people who are really good will start to use these things for amazing well, creations. And, you know, we've talked about this many times is that when Photoshop came out, there was a lot of us, me included, that were doing horrible things with it and not did had no idea what we were doing and reading books and trying to figure out what kerning meant and, and how white, white space meant and how do you frame things and, and but getting paid to do it, not very much, but getting paid to do it. And uh, and then what came out of that as an explosion, but it, there was a, a solid five years of chaos, Ray Gun. If anyone remembers Ray Gun, like that was an unreadable magazine, you know, like that was empowered by the fact that we had Photoshop and Illustrator. But um, but I think that that is, you know, we're going to go through that moment right now. But uh, and you'll end up with movies about angry octopuses with tribal yeah. tattoos. <laughs> Which could be fun. I watched that. Watched that <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Two seconds. It looks Imagine a video of that, Mitch. <laughs> like him just like coming down after you. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, fun and games. All right, uh, let's go to the next question. From Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everybody. With the rise of services like Descript and Riverside FM, where are the high-quality local recordings are uploaded to the cloud? Are beefy computers necessary when sending out remote kits? Uh, Paul Wallace is going to start us off. Paul? Uh, you can you can have both. You can have a beefy computer that doesn't cost very much. If you look at the computer recyclers, like discount computers here in Austin, you can get like 10 cents on the dollar for i7, Dells, pretty good computers. So you may be able to have the best of both worlds. John Preto. Chris is doing a lot of Riverside recording, does several a week, and it's not so much the CPU power of these things. What it, what you really need is you need up, up speed bandwidth. So some of his recordings on the up speed bandwidth transmission after it records is taking an hour, sometimes two hours to get that file moved up to the cloud. So that's that's really your limitation. And we're all waiting for Zoom to have double-sided recording. They announced it, I don't know how long ago. And so that's what I'm waiting for. Alex? Yeah, the, um, currently any computer made in the last any computer over $500 made in the last five years will do, will do everything you need to do. Uh, we are, you know, looking more and more at just sending out laptops, you know, so we've had Mac minis that we sent out, but we're really looking at now the M1, you know, the airs, M2 airs or whatever that we, those are just great. You open them up because I've been using it in my remote kit, as you can see that that is a, the remote kit that I use is an old, I think 13 inch, it's actually not even a 14 inch, a 13 inch MacBook Pro from 2020, it's still Intel and it runs fine. Like it's not working particularly hard to do Zoom and lots of other things. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about the, the price, especially if you're on a Mac side, the M1s are all going to do it fine. I, but I think that you'll find lots of PCs in the same price range that would do fine as well. I'd be a little concerned about using the really small ones. Um, but, uh, but otherwise, you know, like the, the Melees and the B-Links might not be enough. Uh, they might, but that would be the, I'd worry about that. But at $500 and up, 
uh, last five years, you should be fine. Couldn't agree more with that sentiment. I mean, processor capacity has grown so fast that literally the MacBook Air in my voice booth, if I open up some of my Final Cut projects that were so complicated that they would have crushed my two generations ago computer and really brought it to its knees, run just fine on it now. The chips are so much faster and the IO and the, and everything about the way the systems run now, it's just much more efficient. So I'm kind of over the era of I have to buy the biggest one. Now, if you do get extra processing thing, it will make you a bit more efficient. You can be running into something like I shot... Um, 3840 by 2160 uh, up for the last job I did two days ago. And processing those big rasters in video takes some time. I mean, <laughs> you know, a long take of 20 minutes of that kind of a raster is a big file. And so extra processing grunt for those kind of tasks, still very important. But for general business purposes and web work and stuff like that, I think they're all great, exactly as Alex indicated. Let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Fiera, Florida. Western Digital releases firmware updates for SanDisk SSDs. Your thoughts? Mitch Hill, start us off. Yeah, they definitely needed to do something, and I'm glad that they did. Um, just for what it's worth, uh, believe it or not, OWC makes drivers for SSDs, and supposedly they're better than the manufacturer that made them. So uh, it's interesting to, uh, to, to consider that the firmware updates are improving the quality of the devices. Wouldn't it be neat to just buy a uh, firmware update from some other person, some third party, and find out that it, it fixed all the problems with the T6s or T5s? Alex Lindsay. Trust arrives on, on foot and leaves on horseback. Like, I'm not, you know, this is the second time I'm, I, I've uh, been messed up by, you know, some firmware issues. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> like, you know, like so, so that, you know, we'll, we'll go back to what we were doing before. Yeah, it's funny. SSDs are kind of problematic that way. Paul Wallace, you had a thought before we finish? Yeah, do, do if you've got a SanDisk Extreme or Western Digital Passport, do a serial number lookup, and it'll tell you there's five models that were affected by this uh, this issue. The issue was unexpected disconnects. So serial number lookup. There you go. Oh, Alex, you want to get and back in it? We should probably take a couple of years off buying SanDisk products. Like, like this is again, as I said, this is the second time I've had a SanDisk issue where we've had continual write problems with these. I will tell you that I'm never buying SanDisk again. Like, like, like I. This is the after the second, the second, once. You know, I blame you. You know, it's your fault. Once is blame me. You know, so so twice blame me. So I'm, I'm done with SanDisk. Like it's it is it's over, never coming back. You know that. Uh, you know this is because I bought a bunch of them, thinking that they were going to work, and I'm having startup issues i'm having all i don't want to fix the firmware i just don't want to use the discs again so let's go to the next question from paul wallace in austin texas who wins this cage match sony's new 2200 zve1 or a maxed out iphone 14 pro max running ios 17 a lot of hands raised on this one paul wallace is going to start us off paul this is my answer the uh, iPhone 14 Pro Max, uh, uh, I've got both. I've got, a, well, I don't have a, an E1, I have a ZV1, but uh, the the 14 Pro Max is amazing. Uh, Mitch Hill. I, it, the iPhone 14 is certainly a wonderful device, but it's not purpose-made for shooting video. It's made to do a lot of things, including 
taking phone calls. Uh, my ZV uh, E10 does not do that. But uh, I just think that we need to stay in cert- certain areas of, uh, of expectations. Um, eventually, the iPhone cannot do everything, but it's going to do one or two things really well. Alex? Yeah, just, yeah, it just depends on what you need it for. <laughs> like, like, you know, I take the iPhone 4 out, and I take the the iPhone 14 out all the time and shoot a lot of things with it. But there are many, many things, short depth of field and having a real camera operation, being able to rig rig all kinds of IO in and out of it and everything else. Those are things that the phone doesn't do very well. So you just really, it's back to, it depends. Yeah, horses for courses is what comes to my mind. You know, you don't take a plow horse out to run a race and you don't take a race horse out to plow a field. You have to figure out what your stuff does well. And if you know the nature of what you're going to do. Now, I will say if I didn't know for sure what was happening, I have been way more impressed than I ever thought I was going to be by the quality and utility of using phones uh, particularly modern high-end cell phones for video production. And I do it all the time now. But there, like the gig that I just did yesterday, there's no way in heck I would have taken an iPhone out to shoot a bunch of executives in a setup where we lit and had them all looking great. It would have looked great on the iPhone, but it, if nothing else, the audio IO would have been wholly inadequate for doing that job. I had a sound man with me and he could not have attached to the iPhone correctly in the same way we would have been doing double system. That would have created a big problem where with the camera I was using, he was able to give me a feed, plug it into the camera, and now all of a sudden the client has great sound embedded in the files. It's that horses for courses idea. What are you trying to do is what what I think determines the rig you take out into the field. Let's go to the next question. From Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. When sending out mic kits to interviewees, has anyone experimented with including a long Ethernet cable and a USB dongle for the folks that are only using Wi-Fi? That router's got to be somewhere. Alex, how? what's your length of cable trust factor in this? Yeah, no, we've, we've definitely, I mean, the, the longest cable we've sent out is about 300 feet. Um, we haven't needed to do it very often. Typically, a person at home uh, or at an office is usually less than 100 feet away. So 100-foot um, Ethernets are pretty common for us to put, send out, and oftentimes we do send them out with those, with um converters on them. So a USB-C, we usually talk to them about what they have and try to figure out what we should send out as an interface to the computer. Uh, and it's it's a pretty common thing for us to do uh, is to send out Ethernet. A lot of times we're talking to them and to, to the point of this question, you people will say, hey, uh, do you have... Um, uh, you know, do we, do we, do you have a router? And they're like, oh yeah, but the router's really far away. Can, is it okay to run a, and we have to be very nice about it. And it's all a question, but is it okay if we run a cable through your house just during the show? You can take it down afterwards. And they're like, oh, I think it might be okay. Then we call, you know, we do an Amazon order and send them a hundred foot ethernet cable to it. Um, if they say it's 50 feet away, we send a hundred. If we say it's 25 feet away, we say 50, you know, we kind of double what people's assumptions are because it has to wrap around. They're not used to doing, um, running cable. So, so those are the things that I would, you know, we definitely take those things into account. Um, the other thing you have to be careful of, which we've gotten bitten as, as recently as last week is people will hook up the ethernet, but then they will forget to on a Mac, it prioritizes one or the other, and it may be prioritizing Wi-Fi. So even if you hook the Ethernet to the computer, you have to make sure that they turn their Wi-Fi off, and then you test it again to make sure it's going through the Ethernet. Um, and that's another thing you have to do in, in addition to the to the Ethernet. 
At this point, thank you for all of your questions so far. We have a good, robust list, but we can always use more. So don't forget, if you have not done it yet, we use a system called Mukana for handling the questions. And if you're part of Office Hours and are enjoying this, want to contribute to the show by adding questions in, uh, go to the website, follow all the links there, and figure out how you can do that. It's really fun to be a question provider for the show as well. It's kind of, I think, everybody enjoys when they're questions, their answer, their, they get answers to their questions specifically for their problems. And that's what this show is all about. And the voting on questions is equally important because the most voted questions are the ones we get to the quickest and spend the most times with. So get in the system and start voting on questions. Next question. Here's Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois, asking, how would an MV7 hold up in a live environment recording in a bookstore so not a lot of ambient noise? Alex, start us yeah, off. It'll work fine. We've used it a lot for that kind of thing. So uh, MV7s will be fine in a live environment. Um, and they, you know, they just, they're a high, they have a lot of off-axis rejection. Um, they, I mean, an SMB7 or SB, SMB, yeah, SMB7 will work better. Um, it's got a little less, a little less sensitive to plosives. So if you're going to have someone record something, think about a pop mic for the MV7. The foam at the end of it is just a little, it's a lot thinner than the the SMB7. Uh, or SM7B, SM7B. Um, I can't keep all the letters together here. Uh, the SM7B, though, has a thicker foam at the end, and it's, it's a lot less sensitive to popping. Um, we do find that the pop filter helps with the MV7 uh, to make that actually work. So that, that's the only thing to consider. But otherwise, it's, it works fine as a, as a live. It's got a, a USB, so if you want to put it into a USB mixer, you can, but it also has XLR, so you can put it through a standard mixer. Paul Wallace. Yeah, I've, I'm talking on an uh, MV7 right now. If I pull, pull this, I'll do this gingerly. You can see the size of the microphone. I think it'd do great in a bookstore, but you'd need to get a good stand for it. I'm using a boom. You'd you'd want a depth, probably a desktop standard. Depends on the bookstore. I'm thinking book people in Austin, it'd work great. Uh, Mitch Hill. Yeah, I'm with Paul on that. You need a shock mount of some kind, um, a desk mount one, especially if you're signing books right there. There's going to be a lot of noise uh, being generated. But if you can get it on a boom or a shock mount, I think it will solve that problem. By the way, sure mics, solid. Dynamic mics, even more solid. Um, a chance to use uh, that particular mic uh, in an uh, environmental like a bookstore would be fun. So the only thing I'm going to add to this is that you say just a live environment, that can be a number of different things. Like I wouldn't use an MV7 for a band singer, obviously, because they need some sort of hold-on stick mic. And one of the criteria of those kind of mics is very much rejection of handling noise. A desktop mic or something for a podcast is a wholly different thing if it's on a boom arm and it's sitting fixed in one position, as we use them here on the show. I mean, you'll see everybody with a mic in front of us. That mic is going to stay in one position, as are we. If you get into a circumstance where you're in a bookstore and you want to mic the person maybe with something like that we use here on the show, but also want something in the audience to pass around for questions, there you're moving into this other thing where you want a handheld system that can be passed around without a lot of handling noise. And these mics tend to have more handling noise than a stick mic will, for a pass around circumstance. I will say I'm surprised at how many people are using the MV7s and just holding on to them. Uh, I just <laughs> saw one with Mark Cuban uh, where the the podcaster or whatever had or the YouTuber had, a, they were doing it with them and they were holding on to these things. And he was, 
I've never seen Mark Cuban so uncomfortable. Like that was the most uncomfortable interview I've ever seen in my entire life. I couldn't even watch it. I, I watched part of it. He was sitting on the floor in a garage. Like it was the, it was the weirdest. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna ask Mark Cuban to be on your show, give him a, a chair little. at least. Little little prep, little prep. Yeah, it's all I'm saying. Like it's just it it's, it felt like a. It felt like uh, if you search for Mark Cuban, I think sitting on the floor on YouTube, you'd probably see it. But the um, it you know. If you're going to ask someone important, it would be good for, you know, to, to plan well to have a good show. So, so hopefully you'll do better in the library than sitting on the floor in a, in a parking garage. <laughs> Next question. John Aguapitos from Sydney, Australia, asking, Hi, everybody. I have installed a Meraki Wi-Fi system in an office with five access points. When on a Zoom call and you move around the office, is it normal for Zoom to stop working? Alex, give us some help with the it shouldn't. Wi-Fi um, it, it, you know, especially with a Meraki system, the handoff between the APs should be exceptionally good. I think you have probably some kind of configuration issue where the Meraki's may not think that they're in the AP points might not think that they're in the same you know subnet or there's some kind of uh, or there's a break between them or they're conflicting. I mean, but that's a very unusual thing to happen with a Meraki system. Uh, Paul. Yeah, it should work fine. And uh, John, we enjoyed talk, helping you through some issues yesterday and after hours. Look forward to seeing you again. All right. Next question. From Eric Herzen, Hartford, Connecticut. Does MageWell or AWS Link support NDI input? If they did, would you consider using this rather than the SDI input? Alex, what say you? Uh, they don't, and I wouldn't. <laughs> there you like go. I'm not gonna, you know, like I, I, uh, I mean, I, I personally, and I know there's a lot of people here that use NDI for production. I don't use NDI for production. I use it for monitors. So I send stuff out to things, but I don't have NDI manage anything that actually is part of my core pipeline. Is it, what is it, is it in unreliability? Is that the right yeah. word? Uh, yeah. Is that like what's... It just, I don't trust it. Like, yeah. I just don't trust yeah. it. I, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't trust it as a core um, pipeline, you know, and we're now doing a lot of testing with 2110, you know, and, and so, you know, 2110 is like, you know, again, it's, it's, a, it's taken a lot longer for it to come out. Um, it's taken a lot longer for it to get there, but it's a, it's a more, st and it's much harder to, to process. Like, it's not easy. Like, I can't just plug a bunch of Ethernet cables in and have it all work. But I don't, but every time, you know, I've seen enough on this panel, just watching the panel and people's screen, screens going green and things popping around here and there that, I, that I'm, I'm like, that didn't help me, um, you know, think that this was going to be better. So, um, so you know, there's an, uh, even just outside of my own experience, you know, there's been enough issues that I've seen with software-based stuff that I'm still, I'm still pretty hardware-based and baseband. Yeah, sometimes you get that little prickling feeling in the back of your neck like this technology is fine and when it works it works fine but i've just come to not I think, fully trust it i think there's a lot of people that do a lot of good things with it and i and so i know that i'm a limited in that area but i do really you know i guess the other problem is is like i do really complicated things you know most of my shows have satellite trucks and and um i have to run really long runs and they're really complex and there's a lot of planning and if anything goes wrong there'll be a lot of meetings and so i i think that part you know probably I, the kind of shows that I do, you know, um, I don't want to explain to someone why my network, my network video didn't work. Like that's, that's pro the, the biggest thing is just kind of a CYA of, I don't want to, I just don't want to explain it. Does it, is NDI one of the causes, remember back in the early days of the show, we used to get that green and, mm -hmm. and purple. It was every time, every time yeah, it was NDI. That was, 
Okay. And I think it's really convenient. And again, we use it, I use it a lot for like, hey, let's send something really quick. Or if I'm doing something internal or I'm having some fun, I, I think NDI is great and it works most of the time. It's just, that's the problem. It works most of the time, you know, and it's just very rare for SDI to surprise me. You know, like it's not, you know, and, and so that's the, um, you know, it, it takes more infrastructure into planning. And again, we're looking pretty heavily at, um, you know, at 2110. Now that Blackmagic is supporting it, we're, you know, it's not all coming out yet, but obviously there's a lot of opportunity there. So some thoughts anyway. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida has a question. Can you suggest some reliable 1080p live stream capture cards for around $100? Not Blackmagic, the Blackmagic uh, SDK issues. Thanks. John Preto. The only thing that I know that I trust at that price is the Elgato Cam Link. You can get the 4K Cam Link for under 100 bucks. It's like $90. Alex, thoughts? Yeah, you're not going to find something that is got better SDKs than Blackmagic for $100. Like, that's the problem. Like, the Camlink doesn't, I don't believe, has any SDK that I know of. So, you know, when you're down to a low price, then you're not using an SDK, um, you know. And so, I don't know if you're having, if you're dealing, trying to use an SDK, I, I just don't know what card you're going to find that you could, that you could interact with um, other than Blackmagic that, at that price point. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, and right here on our panel, have you seen Amazon Inspire? It's a TikTok-like shopping feed that supports both photos and videos, and there's a long link to it there. Uh, Paul Wallace, start us off. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to find. It's not really an app that you can just install. You have to go get a URL. I got the URL, and uh, and then it looks like TikTok. It's a, a very TikTok-like thing. Here's somebody showing you how to mark on a clear plastic surface, and uh, it's uh, TikTok-like, very much so. So, And this is the same thing we talked about with the 500 videos for $12,500 that has all the blogging community incensed right now at, that they would yeah. offer such a low rate. Alex? Yeah, the, the the thing uh what's interesting is they're all this is always the problem with paying people. Like TikTok didn't pay anybody to make any videos and they're all making all these videos. And so I think Amazon thought that, well, we can pay a little and that'll be better than TikTok. But as soon as you add money, people start to like equate it to hourly. You know, like if, if you have something, you know, that's out there, you can you can say, Hey, you can do whatever you want and then people jump on it because they, they're not they're not thinking about how much they're getting paid per hour. As soon as you start giving them a number, they're like, Hey, I'm only making five dollars an hour. This isn't worth it. It's a very interesting like human quality to do that. And so um so that's the complicated thing that 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 I'm that that um that Amazon has got itself into. I think Amazon's desperately trying to figure out how the Chinese are doing so much sales over live streaming and they just can't quite figure it out, like like how it's actually working. So anyway, Alex. Oh, I'm sorry. That was Alex. Paul wanted to come back in on this. Yeah, they're going to have to figure out an easier way for folks to get the app on their phones. Oh, they're just getting started. I mean, they're just they're they're just getting there. Um, they're, they're, it's it's hard because they're trying to figure it out. I mean, we're seeing the first little bits of it, uh, but a lot of people do stuff that's hard while they're trying to figure out like just the interface and how it works and whether it makes sense. Um, so I don't. I think you should look at what they're doing right now as a beta. They're not trying to roll it out yet. When they when they feel like it's working um, in beta, they'll they'll probably push it out wider. 
and e-commerce and what it's going to look like in this era of people coming, you know, there's so many eyeballs go to TikTok to watch those little videos. And you're right. There's so much creative energy that goes into it just because people say, I want to put up a cool thing and get a lot of views and get a lot of notoriety amongst my friends for having a really cool yep. TikTok video. Uh, translating that into the business space can be a real big challenge. We'll see how it goes. Next question. This is Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, Florida, asking, what voodoo did Pixel Professor Nick Justician use on Tuesday's show to sound so good with his Yeti mic? Seemed a bit far from him, fairly off-access, looked like lots of flat, hard surfaces in the actual room, and yet sounded great for an interview. Alex, did you... Uh no, I don't. I have no idea what Nick is using, but I think that it, it does. It, there's just a lot of physics in a room, and while they may have a lot of um, hard surfaces, if the hard surfaces are at the right angle, you won't necessarily hear a lot of reflection. Um, the other side of that is also that um, that he could be using some of the Nick has a lot of Nvidia cards, so he could be using some of the the Nvidia. Uh, voice uh, improvements that are there. I don't. We will have to ask Nick next time. Next time he's on, but I'm not. I'm not certain. But I think those are two possible outcomes. Maybe both together. Mitch Hill. Yeah, I thought it sounded pretty good, but he had it off to the side, and whenever he turned to look at something or gestured to something, it did go off off uh, uh, off axis and sound a little bit off mic. But for the most part, I thought it was doing a great job, and I can see why you asked the question, Jeff, because I don't usually expect to see that kind of quality from a Yeti just as it is. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said this far. You know, we talk about uh, read the room, but listening to the room, Some I've walked into circumstances I thought, oh, this is going to be horrible. And I set everything up and you put the headphones on and you listen and go, well, that sounds remarkably good. You just happen to get right at a set of nulls and it's all the problems (laughs) defeated themselves. Occasionally, occasionally, occasionally I walk in and I say, this is going to be horrible. And then it is. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's what happens 90 percent of the time. All of us know you walk in and do you the clap test and you get a you know half second slap back from a wall and then two other reflections and you're going, OK, I don't know what I can do other than bring in a sound booth and put it in the middle of the room to clear yeah. this up. So it audio is hard. It, it's just hard. There you go. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York, asking, probably should have asked this on the audio day. Space is limited at the office. Are these mobile isolation booths worth consideration for run-and-gun voiceover work? <sighs> Alex, yeah, they're not. Off. They're not isolation booths, but they are really good at handling what we just talked about. So what those the what these little booths will do oftentimes is they'll drop the out the exterior sound by a little. I mean, there's there's material there, so it's going to depending on how thick that material is, it might drop it by ten twenty uh, dB, which might be enough for you to to be able to filter it or do whatever you're going to do later. The um, uh, the but what's really useful for them is that they suck up a lot of reflection. So if you go if you need to go somewhere and have someone record something, and not have it be echoey like it was in their office or in a big hall or whatever, these booths tend to work really well. Um, but you have to just remember that you're not you're not making a significant difference in the amount of ambient noise that's arriving. You're really cutting down on reflections. Mitch. I think it's a great idea to use it. Uh, there's there's a lot of them out there, and there's some very expensive ones too. But here's your pitch, Dave: If you're going to sell it to your uh, your corporate overlords, tell them it's a movable asset. In other words, when uh, when you buy it, you can depreciate it as a uh, separate device, and you can move it to your next office when they move you out of there. 
I will say from the many voiceover booths, the uh, voiceover uh, websites I'm on, probably the most misunderstood aspect of recording audio are, is what we're talking about now. It's the difference between isolation, and that's the word that uh, David used in this, looking for a mobile isolation booth. They don't do what real isolation is, and they can. That's just physics. Anything, uh, my goal used to be, listen, if I had a stink bomb and I put it off somewhere in the room, would you still smell it standing in the microphone? Isolation is completely enclosing where you're doing your performance such that there is no exchange of audio uh, reflections or anything else. The mic truly is isolated. Those are the expensive solutions that we spend a lot of money to put a room within a room to isolate. Managing reflections and treating the room for the kind of things that Alex talked about. Absolutely. Uh, some of these things can work well. Sometimes they don't work as well as you thought. You think, though. So it's actually a pretty complicated thing to set up a space to really be excellent for recording audio. And that's why we talk about it so much. So continue to come in on Wednesday for our audio experts. Continue to bring your questions here. Your specific circumstance is the uh, treating that, figuring out what's going on and why you don't like what you're hearing, and taking the right, right steps and bringing in the right products to fix those problems are the only sure way that I know of to get a really great sound anywhere, everywhere. Let's go to the next question. Joachim Behrens from Delft, Netherlands, asking, Have you seen the tour through the new Formula One Technology Center in Biggin Hill, UK, where everything is remotely controlled on all F1 races across the world? Well, he has a video there. That would be fun. I didn't have time to watch it this morning. But, Alex, did you get a chance to see what I did. talking about? <laughs> yeah, wow. I was, fortunately, he asked it early, early before the show, and that's the best time to submit videos for us to look at. So I was able to sit there and watch through it. And it was mostly English. It's pretty impressive, you know. So basically, there's still things that they're doing on site. They're still shading the cameras. They're still, um, they have probably a backup switching system that's there. Um, they have, you know, there's still things that have to be done. So still a big crew on site managing that. But a lot of the playback and the graphics and many of the edits and many of the other things that are being put together are being done, um, you know, remotely at this F1 master control. Um, and it's in, in Biggin Hill, uh, UK, and it is... It's super impressive. I would highly recommend watching the video. Uh, we've had some folks from F1 come on and talk to us in After Hours a couple times. And um, it's they have taken it to an entirely different level. And I think that one of the things that makes F1, I was really trying to think about why F1 does this so much better. And they get people who are not even into car racing into car racing. And you know because of the content is so good. And um, it's partially because they own the entire pipeline. You know, so... Even with the NFL, the NFL works very hard on making things work, and it's probably the next one behind F1 as far as being able to build compelling content around a sport. But the NFL, uh, what it does is it's constantly doing R&D, but the broadcasts are still run by different companies. You know, it's run by NBC or, or ABC or Amazon or CBS. And there, that interaction there is still an inefficient linkage. And so the NFL does really well, but there's really something that happens with um, the fact that you are the sport and you're doing all the video and you're trying to tie it all together and there's there's not a bunch of different companies to work with. You're not trying to figure out an interlink to those companies. You're just, this is the way we do it. And I think you're seeing that with F1. It's, it's a really impressive video. I would highly recommend looking at it. 
There you go. Sounds excellent. Uh, Don't forget, your questions drive the show. Make sure your votes count. So not only add your questions to the queue, uh, but vote on those questions. Vote them up or down and make sure that we know what you're most interested in hearing us address. Next question. From Ronnie Hofsoy from Tromsø, Norway. Labels for cables, racks, patch panels, equipment, text, graphics, logos, QR codes, barcodes, and various colors. Is there a single solution for all these? And what is your favorite out there? And what about uh, glue types, material, ease of use, and cost? Simple, direct question, Ronnie. I like that. <laughs> we could talk about this for the next half hour, but Alex is going to start us off. We probably could do a whole hour on labeling. Um, yeah, so labeling and label process. Uh, so I, the thing that I have sitting on my desk, so it's easy for me to grab because I use it all the time, is this P-Touch Cube Plus. Um, this can be plugged into your computer or I just use it with my with my phone. So I'm like, oh, I need a label and I pop open that there's a there's an app for it. And I just pop open the app. I type in what I want. I hit print and I come out with, you know, a little label like that. Well, let's see, a little label like that. So um, so this is, and the reason I do that, because a lot of us have these, the reason I put my name on it, remember who's got which one. This one does up to one inch tape. There's a lot of different kind of tapes it can work with. Um, the plus is important. The, the, the cube, the first cube is much more limited. Um, all kinds of different thicknesses, colors, etc. cetera. Uh, once I go past this, I'm usually using a Brady labeler, which is about five times as expensive as this is, but it'll print on metal. I mean, it's got like incredible label options. Um, the, the high-end Brady's are kind of the thing to do those kind of things. Um, past that, when you're doing cables, remember that you're usually going to have to use a, a clear cable wrap. And that usually only, it's a shrink wrap. Um, it's, I don't have it in at arm's reach. Um, but basically you put that over and typically you have to do it before you finish the cable. So if you're buying finished cables, it doesn't work as well. But when we build them with that, you put this, you put a, a clear, you put your label on, you put that clear, that shrink wrap on it, and then you hit it with a, a heat gun gently, and it'll t- that will shrink right onto onto your um, cable and keep and protect it. I haven't found one that you can just wrap onto your cable and expect it to stay there forever. So that's that's the thing you want to kind of think about when you uh, when you do those. I find that the stickiness is just isn't there. Um, but you do have to think about that when you're building the cables because the, again, once you put the head on, the shrink wrap would have to be so big to get over the head that it doesn't work as well. I have seen some that are slitted, but I, again, we have problems with them over time. Mitch. Yeah, I agree with Alex. Brother, P-Touch is the way to go. And they have so many different types of label cartridges that you can use with these devices. Um, I think they have a self-laminating cable uh, thing where you wrap it around and the last layer is a clear plastic that does sort of what you're talking about, but without the shrink wrap capability. But I have them in black. I have them in white. I have them up to an inch and a half, maybe two inches. And uh, I use it for everything. And their software is pretty much bulletproof. Paul Wallace. Yeah, Alex, I, uh, you showed that the other day on the sh- on one of the other shows, and uh, I looked it up on Amazon. It's out of stock, so uh, you, you're going to have to look around for it, I think. <laughs> Maybe it's because of you, Alex. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? I use P-Touch as well. The only thing I do differently than Alex is that I like one with a keyboard on it because I can hand this to somebody and say, go replace, you know, go take that old label off and put this one on. And they don't have to have any software on their phone or anything else. But P-Touch has worked for me just as well for a long, long time. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, for connecting a DAW with virtual instruments to a Dante network, would DVS or a hardware Dante device like the RME Digital Dante be better? 
The DigiFace, Dante. Uh, Alex? Yeah, you need to have one, at least one device with a chip on it in your Dante network for it to work properly. I mean, we just, we've tried to use just DBS and you really need, you really need to have something there that's going to, that's going to provide a, a proper management of the clock. Mitch Hill. A quick way to do it is one of those uh, Avio modules that they have that you can plug into your uh, uh, your device, and they also have them for USB, so it can talk uh, with the UVC to the computer. So I think your virtual instruments would uh, uh, go out okay. And it's a cheap way to get into it without buying a bunch of expensive. I know Army, I have them, I love them, but they're expensive. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, how do you show how your space flows with the fly-through app for iOS? Paul, I've never heard of this. So uh, is there some sort of iOS fly-through device? And can you talk to us about it a little bit? Yeah, the uh, I saw this on Leo's show. And uh, it was I think it was on Windows Weekly or something. And basically, it just you just walk around your house with your phone. You just wander around pointing it wherever, and AI stitches everything together and gives you uh, a tour, a smooth, flowing tour without any jitter or anything. That's pretty cool. Do you have, oh, I see it, Luma Labs AI fly-throughs. Pretty cool. Is it, a, is it an upload all your material to them, and then they do the processing in the back end and then it it, send it you a video? It took Leo on the show. I th he, he said it'd take 45 minutes. So he said, we'll take a 45-minute commercial break and come back. Of course, he was kidding. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> it takes a long time to process. Okay. So the only thing I would be, if you have sensitive content, obviously, I'm not sure you want sending that up to a third party to do the stitching and walkthrough, but for your standard real estate thing or, you know, house walkthrough or just to document your place. The first thing that came into my mind is it'd be really smart to do this in everybody's house for an insurance claim. If you have a flood or a fire or something like that, and you want to make sure that you can say, I owned these devices and they were worth this much to be able to show people that that was part of your household uh, goods inventory would be really useful. Alex, do you have some thoughts about this? Yeah, the this is we talked about this a couple of days ago. Um, this is the, uh, definitely a space to watch for real estate, which is the um, NERF. So this is a neural neural, neural radiance fields, um, and that is the that's what they're using here. And so the downside of NERF is you don't really have editable data. Like there's nothing to do with that nerf other than to look at it. The upside is, is for real estate, that's perfect. Um, the, the key is, is that the render time or the, the compute time doesn't really matter. Um, what you're talking about, you're not trying to use it right after you did it. You're, you're going through a bunch of tours. You're going to punch it out later. The main thing that's really um, powerful is the, that it lowers labor time. So it means that a person can sit there and, and go through um, you know, lots and lots of houses in one day or lots of apartments and then just push them into a server to, to upload. And so I think that that is a, a pretty powerful thing. I think for what they're showing with real estate, what they're really talking about here is the ability, you know, you're going to put them on the cloud anyway. People are going to look at these because you're trying to rent the house out. So putting it in the cloud to be calculated is not that big of a deal. Um, so I think it's, this is where I, when I saw, when I really saw a lot about nerfs, I, I immediately thought, well, real estate's going to be different forever. Um, you know, so it still take to do what they're showing here probably took an hour <laughs> to shoot it, like not just to do it. I mean, you can wave it around, but you still, you still have to, the camera still has to see everything at least once to understand, you know, to, to figure it out. So you still have to kind of, that this was probably painstakingly shot to create 
what you see here. So it's not, you know, it looks really impressive, but there's still time. It's not like you just wandered through and waved your camera around. Um, someone who knew what they were doing were covering it. And anybody who's done photogrammetry, that's kind of the same thing. We, you know, we have to cover it at least once. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, fascinating technology to keep our eyes on. I'm certainly going to pay attention to this from now on. Next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, salvaged an AJA FS1 from an old location. What are some real-life practical uses of this handy device? Alex Lindsay. Yeah, the uh, the FS1 is great. We've had a bunch of them. Uh, we now have mostly FS4s, FS2s, and FSHDRs, but the FS1 was a single-channel uh, input, you converting frame rates. So you can, you know, typically convert frame rates out of there. Um, you can also embed, de-embed, and remap. Um, I believe with the FS1, you can embed, de-embed, and remap audio channels, um, which is good. There, I do believe there's limited delay that's also available. I can't remember where they added the, there, was, there used to be a, a watermark system, but it, you know, most of the stuff I've owned is an FS2 or above, but the watermark, the FS2 had a watermark. It also had the ability to scale up and down. So you'd be able to scale um, an image. A lot of times we would scale part of an interface out. So you can scale it up, you can scale it down. It usually is pretty good at it. Um, so those are some of the things that I believe an FS1 will do. Again, my we bought one FS1 and then after that we all had FS2s and fours and HDRs and we have a bunch of them, the HDRs in, in the system. So so I'm this is a general understanding of how the FSs work, but they're really powerful machines. Uh, be careful. The one thing I will say is if you're scaling, this is something to test. On an FS2, uh, at least the original FS2s, and so the, possibly with the FS1, the way it processed color is that it would subsample that when it scaled it. And so what you would see is if you go from 1080p or 1080i to 720p or 1080p to 720p, you'll notice uh, stair-stepping on pure colors like red. So um, so do a test of that if you're ever going to do that. But that's the one thing with the that was a shortcoming of the FS2. I don't know if it was a shortcoming of the FS1. Next question. Eric Hers from Hartford, Connecticut, asking, getting hardware vendors to support modern codecs like AV1 is frustrating. Let's brainstorm about how to receive 2110 video via IP on a Mac Mini. Would you feel comfortable with such an encoding compression streaming solution in production? Alex, what say you? Yeah, I'm just I'm just waiting to get my Sonic box. I'm going to buy a Sonic box specifically for this this need um, because uh, the Blackmagic now has IP, so I can get in and out of uh, up to two channels um, to do that. And I'm going to be testing that hopefully next week, if not the week after. So I'm going to have a Sonic box that we're going to be testing that with. And so so stay tuned. John Preto, you had a thought. Alex said exactly what I was thinking. Oh, there we go. All right, great minds think alike. So we're moving on to our next question. John Agapitos from Sydney, Australia, asking, Thanks for the help on After Hours Crew. I've got my Synology Snap replication working. It's currently replicating 35 terabytes of data. However, the destination is not showing any files. Do I have to be patient and wait 23 hours for the first backup? <laughs> Alex. Well, yeah, I would, wait for, I would wait for it to be done with whatever it's doing before I worried about whether it, whether it did it or not. So there may be a little bit of a setup time there, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about it because sometimes it depends on the operating system and everything else of whether it's going to show um, anything before it's done. Paul Wallace? Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend you come back in after hours. And the gentleman that I mentioned to you yesterday, I, I sent him an alert that you might be coming back. And he's a, a mastermind when it comes to, the, uh, to that product. All right, let's move to the next question. 
Douglas Carmichael's here. What does the panel think of the Yamaha DM3? From my observation, the one-knob interface seems to be a lot less efficient for live mixing. Alex? It's actually pretty common. I mean, you know, the way Yamaha has worked for a long time is you select a channel and then start to work with it, and you're oftentimes working with a single, you know, a single DOM. So I don't think it's that big of a deal because usually what you get access to that you need for a live, you're, you're trying to do in, in, pre, in pre-production. So when you're doing rehearsals and everything else, you're, the things you would do with that knob are typically done then. Um, so during the live show, you're temp- typically not using that knob. Um, and, and you might be tweaking things, but it's, it's usually pretty minor and it's usually something very specific. Um, the, you know, the mixer looking at it, I haven't used it yet. Uh, it's starting to grow on me a little bit. I just don't like all the cables next to, you know, you can get a, you, you could get a, a stage box for it, but all the cables running into my desk is not something I'm usually super excited about. But I think that um, at the price point and for the target market they're doing, it looks like a pretty, pretty useful, uh, useful little mixer. Yeah, I agree with Alex. It's interesting. You know, I used to have only uh, traditional audio control sliders, lots of, uh, lots of sliders, uh, mix bus, output bus, all the rest of that stuff. When I switched into doing the desktop work here, I moved to that Universal Audio Apollo Solo, which is a single big knob in the middle of things. And I thought at first, oh, that means it can only do a few things. It'll be pretty simple to operate. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> and it, it has to do with the fact that there's tons of configuration stuff done in the software right. behind the scenes. And exactly what Alex is saying, you preset so many things that need deep control, but you do those ahead of time. And when you come down to actually being able to perform with it, if you've got it set right, a one button tap and an adjustment of a level, and then you have to do something else. So you go to the second button and you adjust that with the same knob. And it seems to work really well and be very flexible because most of the stuff is behind the scenes. And I, Let's and I think, that, I think that the thing that I've, that I've, um, the hard part for me is that most of my production is X32 rack or then we start at QO1s. So this is kind of fits in between that. So it's a little bit of a blind spot for me because I, I, I love having the mixer all built into the rack so that it's all, all the wiring is all in one place and I can, I can unpack it and unpack it. Um, and so that, and then having a controller that's just connected, the X-Touch, you know, controller being just connected via an Ethernet is super convenient. And so, so that's, that's why I, I, I kind of lean towards that. So I think of in that sub $2,500 so far, I've really think about the X32 as the solution. And, um, but the, you know, again, Yamaha is a great, great bit package. And we use tons of, you know, QL5, QL1s, QL5, CL5s, you know, the, that a lot of those are things that we've used um, pretty heavily in the past. Let's go on to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are the costs and benefits you gain from subscribing to 11 Labs? Clone your own voice or a voice you have a permission and rights to? Only you have access to the voices you create. Start us off, John Pretto. I'm a paying member of 11 Labs. We use it all the time. We use it for little videos that we do, and we cloned Courtney's voice with his permission, of course. We just took one of his videos off of YouTube and ran it through 11 Labs, and now we have Courtney in a box, and it works fantastic. We've done tons of audiobooks with uh, with different voices that we have the rights to, so it works great. Paul Wallace. Yeah, I clone my voice on uh, Apple's new uh, personal voice, and compared to 11 labs, it's like kindergarten compared to graduate school and college. I mean, 11 labs. I could I could clone my voice and play it out in Indian English, Irish English, Australian English. That's amazing. I, I look forward to learning more from John Preto, who's way further down the line with this. Mitch Hill. 
I don't think these devices or software are there yet. I think that uh, it's better to use a real-life person. Uh, full discourse, I'm a voiceover person on the side. I do it. It's my side hustle. And uh, for 50 bucks, I'll do anything you want, John. <laughs> Alex. You know, I think that the the the, the real opportunity here is uh, it really offers an explosion in uh, for a variety of things, but really an explosion in how we move information around. When you look at uh, having readers for every magazine, every book, every, you know, it's just not sustainable. There's not enough money there to do it. So, you know, doing a typical voiceover is somewhere between five and $10,000, you know, to do, to do a, for a whole book. And it's, nothing for this to do to what it's doing to or relatively nothing for it to do it and i think that i think that it does make sense to have human voices do things that have a wider reach but i think the ai voices there's just so many books there's a book that that um, one of my favorite books historical books is called africa biography of a continent and if you haven't read it it's amazing but it's 700 pages and i really want to reread it but i don't want to reread it <laughs> like i don't think i can i just can't sit down and read 700 pages again and um and it's just the most amazing book by john reader and I'm always I check all the time like oh I would love to recommend that I would love to listen to it and I would love to have it in some format that I could hack so that I could just put it into 11 labs and have it just just do it because I just um, you know really find myself uh, wanting to have some of these older books more obscure books uh, converted to audio and I think that that's going to be the for the consumer that's going to be a huge opportunity for us to listen to things that just haven't been available Paul Wallace yeah, as I, I think I got this right. As I recall, I signed up and uh, it's $5 a month for the very lowest tier, but they give you $4 off for the first month. Interesting. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, in the nar narration space and audiobooks and things like that, this is highly debated right now, uh, particularly since Hollywood's on strike in part because of this exact topic, the use of AI to replace performance. Um, it's going to be an interesting thing to see how it works out. I can see tons and tons. This is just personal from me as a longtime narrator, longtime voice talent who is kind of confronting this happening there. There's going to be a... Um, host of kinds of content that this will work brilliantly for and create no problem. If you really try to get into what the upper end voice talents do, particularly the actors who are in audiobook narration and things like that, at some point, somebody has to decide, or the, you can, I guess, program an AI to try to decide how much anger does this line need to land right. An, a, a human voice talent is going to make that decision and is going to play that particular line of dialogue or that particular piece in the context of everything. If you take that brain out of it and you have an AI doing it, then the question is, does somebody have to algorithmically determine in the 10 lines of increasing anger for this scene, how do you tell the AI to modulate anger correctly over the arc of that to make it satisfying? You know, does it go from one as a measure of anger to two, three, four, five, six? Or does it go one, four, but then it comes back down to two because he's having second thoughts about being angry and then escalate to 10 as he blows up? This nuanced stuff that people who are really good actors intuitively understand how to bring a character to life. I'm not saying it can't be done, but somebody has to just, program in the algorithms. The, the thing is, is that the the, the fiction, all I'll say here real quickly, I know we're at the end of the hour, is that 
if you walk if you walked into a bookstore, I know they're not very many, so you have to kind of look for them now. But if you walked into Borders bookstore and you look at the fiction section, the fiction section is less than ten percent of the bookstore. So all we're talking about when we're talking about emotion is a very a tiny, and it really is like one percent of the of the market. And so the thing is, is that there is ninety nine percent of the market is is informational stuff that we just need to turn into audio. <laughs> like, like that. So, so I think that we we worry about it, and I think that you're totally right, that actors are important for all the, f- the stuff, but it's just a tiny little part of the market, and what we're missing is all that content and all that knowledge is locked up in an old, um, an old storage medium, which is text, and we need to unlock that and, and make sure that we all have, a, have it available to us, in my opinion. Fair enough. These things are going to be debated for a while. We are in the transition period where this wasn't possible before, it, but now it is. We're right on the cusp of being able to switch into our second hour. Don't forget, tomorrow, Friday, we're going to be doing custom computing with Puget Systems. So if you're interested in those kind of high-end systems, come back for that definitely tomorrow. It'll be really fun. Uh, so now we are heading into our second hour, which means that we do a little transition here. And I'm going to say, stand by. Welcome back to an exciting second hour here on uh, Office Hours. We're going to be talking today about all sorts of connections and rigging for your camera. If uh, you're like most of us, you bought your camera originally, got really excited about it, but then suddenly needed all sorts of extra capabilities on top of what the camera just comes with. And so uh, particularly in the era where we moved from dedicated camera bodies to things like DSLRs and other non-traditional video cameras, most of us use cages and rigs and extensions. What we're really looking to do is get a variety of different kinds of capabilities to add capacity to our cameras. And that's where you come into camera accessories, camera rigging, adding things from the outside. As I normally do on these basic to these uh, Thursday things. I've got just a couple of really slides here to just kind of frame what we're going to be talking about and to get the conversation going. We are looking for your questions about how camera rigging affects you, what you want to do. Um, Let's dive into just a couple of them really quickly. The first slide I wanted to show was just this. It has to do with the kinds of different rigs. We have small handheld things. We have DSLRs. We're moving up to medium rigs. And then there's the kind of thing that Alex's brother were talking about, the amazing rig he showed us with the gigantic uh, cameras that have so many aspects of it. There are four primary areas I'd just like to I'd like you to think of a little bit about. That is camera support. How are you going to physically hold the camera? What are you going to put a cage around it? Or are you going to put it on top of a tripod or something like that? Power, Uh, How are you going to get power to it? Audio and video. Um, Cages, very quickly, all sorts from simple cages that go around a camera to allow you to attach a couple of things. Uh, The next kind of thing is tripods, uh, small and large. Uh, All sorts of gimbal rigs. They're, They're more and more popular, but boy, do they make rigging more complex because if you're trying to do an audio tap out of a camera on a gimbal, you need a different set of tools. And of course, things like jibs and other large things where you can see on the the lower photo here, there's just tons and tons of rigging required to get all of the outboard stuff in place. Power, we'll talk about maybe rigging batteries and the power taps from them. Are you going to go to AC power? And if so, how are you going to rig that with what 
what you're doing. The audio side of things, some sort of a way to get audio in and out. And again, with things like gimbals and remote heads of jibs, this becomes very important. And the video part of it, uh, how are you going to monitor what you're seeing? Is it going to be something on the camera? Are you going to be monitoring out because you're working with a crew and your crew needs to be able to see maybe you have clients on set? All of this is kind of the overview of the subject we're going to be talking about. How do you rig your camera and what are you looking to get accomplished in the field to make your shoot a success, to have the right stuff with you, to have all the right connectors and cables and adapters and bolt-ons so that everything is in place, it's stable, and you can get your work done. Okay, that's kind of the generic overview. Now I'm going to turn to Alex and say, Alex, what are you thinking? What's your thinking about this stuff? Yeah, I mean, the... You start thinking about cameras and you go, well, I, I, I'm going to have, you know, a couple things that I might add. And you think about how to attach it to the camera. And, and I think that the thing you have to really realize, especially as you start to really look at these rigs, is that you really have to prepare for it as you start to build for it. Um, so as soon as you start having a camera there, and there's a lot of different things that you can be using. But like, for instance, this is oh, this is from many years ago. But to give you a sense of, you know, where things, um, you know, start to go. Uh, let me let me pull this up here. Um, you you know you start attaching a lot you know to these cameras and and attaching in, and just gen in general trying to figure out how these things are going to work. So if we look at this, like for instance, this this camera here, um, this is um, you know th what what this is a very simple rig um, that we have set up here. But you have we we we're basically have motors here. Um, we have these are the these are the controllers for those motors, and so they're getting um, you know feedback for them. Um, and then of course we have to figure out. Now a lot of them are these little these little arms become very very useful. We have lots and lots and lots of those. Here's a tally box that we had to figure out how to put on. And then of course you have rails that are um, that are allowing you to to put those you know to, to attach all of those things to it. So rails become a Thing. And these are these are larger rails. Um, these are, I think, 19 mil um, uh, rails that we use, and those are standard production. Now, this is all in a dove plate down here. So this is I don't have a picture of the dove plate um, that's readily available, but um, but that is a um, uh, it, it's very easy for us to lock in and lock out of. Um, a couple other ones here. Um, if you look at this, you know, this is a, a kind of a jib that we had that. And one of the things that it seems simple, but we find that we run out of a lot of is if you if you look carefully, what you'll see here are little Velcro strips. I mean, these are little Vel eyelet Velcro strips and they're everywhere. And as we start to rig these things, um, knowing how many Velcro strips you have is important. We buy whole rolls of them um, that, that you use there. Here's another another version of that where you can see like all these little and we're kind of tidying up everything, you know, with those Velcro strips as we start to build those out. Um, you know, a lot of the rigging also to support the cameras. I mean, the cameras may be here, but you also have to think about, you know, how are you going to rig, you know, we'll we won't talk too much about this, but how to rig, you know, a lot of these bits and pieces up here that we've, that we've used in the past. Other things that are really interesting for rigging is how you're going to monitor things around it. So one of the things that we've used a lot of are these little micro flexes. Um, so they're not micro flexes, micro, uh, micro grip. Um, this is from Matthews. And these are little, these are tiny little things and they're, they're like a little erector set, but they have, you know, we have, um, you know, all kinds of little mounts for them and these little eyelets here that allow us to kind of place the monitor exactly where we, where we want it to, um, you know, to make some of that stuff work. So those are some other things to think about there. I think I got all, all the, and here's the most recent rig. Um, and, um, 
So this is from uh, from Seagraph, and you can see how what tur- what started as a little, a tiny little camera had turned into a little bit of a, and this is very common. Like this level of complexity in one of these is is a um, uh, Cassie's rig is a very um, common rig here. So here's here's our our antenna, here's our transmitters, um, and they've got these little, you know. And, and what happens is is that as you start going down this path, you start getting, you know, and typically you're buying them as you need them, but having um, this skeletal rig around it means that you can attach things, you know, everywhere, and um, and you end up with, you know, lots of, you know, lots of little clamps. I mean, like this is the, you now the other thing to think about is also what you're going to standardize on. Um, so, you know, I, because I'm, you know, for the bigger shows we do, there's a lot of rigs that we use that are, that are pretty, pretty hefty. Um, uh, but for my personal rigs, um, I've kind of standardized around small rig just because everything kind of fits together. So small rig, you know, so this is like the, I, this is what we're talking about with the, you know, these are the, um, these are, you know, the, the, you know, this is the, this is the beginning of building a rig that you're going to sit, you know, a lot of stuff on top of it. Um, a lot of times you can be rigging up your batteries. You can be rigging up your wireless transmitters. You're rigging up a lot of converters, you know, that if you're converting from HDMI to SDI or SDI to fiber or, you know, everything else. And so you start building these things out. Um, and, you know, the, the other bits and pieces that, that you have, the other bits and pieces that you have here, you, you start to have lots of these little clamps. Um, these are, these are great small rig again if you start to really work on these this is like just a little clamp that goes in and it's just it's designed to you know um screw into the small rig and then also screw into the next next piece of something and it's relatively small there it's got two balls um the two ball mounts or 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 to turn um other things that that we you know grab onto are things like um you know this is actually you lansy i actually like this one as a grip um, a little bit better. Um, that's that's there. And then this one of the things I do when I'm rigging uh, iPhones for either information or for shooting is I get me- these are metal. These are metal mounts. Um, this is <laughs> woo woo woohoo. Um, I don't know if they're still available, but somebody makes them in the, just maybe not the same name. Um, but really, really beefy a beefy mount. I also just um, with the mount that we use for um, uh, I have a. Um, peak design case on my iPhone. And so this fits right into this square here. So it just locks in and it becomes part of that camera. So that's another way to kind of very quickly with this case to kind of grab onto it. Um, Small Rig also makes one uh, for the iPhone that is, uh, you can see this is, this is very light. It's a very light little uh, metal rig that, that's designed for the small rig um, systems. As you start to do this, there's a couple other things that you want to start thinking about. Um, and you, again, arms are another arms are another piece of this. So these are. Um, let's see if I have. So there's a lot of these arms. Let me just grab a couple of them here. I have lots of this gear. I just grabbed boxes of it. Um, so. Small rig makes these arms. Now, these arms were originally no, Noga arms, and the Noga arms are still, they're better. <laughs> but they're just a lot more expensive. They're like $110 instead of 20 So these are the, um, this is uh, the small rig version of that. This is a little arm, and we use so many of these arms. So you have, this is a larger arm. Uh, this is a smaller version of the same thing. And what happens is, is when you, everything tightens up when you tighten it, and when you loosen this, this here, 
it, it all moves. One thing you want to hear, if you hear that going, you want to hear that some of them work on friction and some of them work with teeth. Teeth are a good thing. You know, like, so teeth are important to have on these arms because otherwise they'll slowly um, not work anymore. Um, you know, so the other thing is, is this handle here having kind of big thumbs turns out to be useful. <laughs> like if they're little, there's some of them that are little turns and they're they're much much more difficult to work with. Um, I do like this. This one also has a larger arm on it that, that's easier to kind of get a hold of. Now, as you get bigger with some of these, um, you end up with... Uh, this. This is a magic arm. Manfrotto makes this. And this one has a big old handle that you open up and you can kind of open it up here. And this is where you start putting on larger monitors or even cameras. So we will rig cameras to rigs, usually and typically a Mafer. I don't know if I have a Mafer. Uh, I have one over there, but it's attached to something. Anyway, these these are the magic arms that you start to use for larger rigs there. And then the only thing I'll say is once you start going into that, and again, you know, every camera that I buy has, starts with the ability to rig it. So if you look at this, this camera here, this is the little EV10. And I, I bought a, you know, I bought a rig for it. And immediately, you know, you, you're able to add things to it. I don't, I just buy them when I buy the cameras. Like I consider that part of buying the cameras, like a camera case. So, so I would highly recommend that. Um, having little tool systems like this. So like, for instance, the reason I, I'm kind of standardizing in some cases on the small rigs is because they all now I have a tool set that that is that this will pretty much work with every you know every these just swing out I have better versions of this but I have this in the bag um, let me see if I can cover my eyes I have this in my bag um, all the time as a, just the kind of the backup of like I need to get something in and out of it but once you start rigging you become very also very sensitive to tools and making sure that you have the tools that you need to do that the other thing that I do is I have you know I have a lot of um, I have a lot of screws. <laughs> so uh, small rig also makes this thing. This is not a small rig ad. It just happens to be what I use a lot of. Um, and so this is just a, it, all it is is mounted. It's a, it's a big cheese plate that, that has lots of um, threading in it. And I can just throw tons of, of um, uh, screws and mounts and it's got a couple tools in it as well. Um, and I keep this in, in with what I'm doing. And man, like just having them, it kind of like an easily look at it. I can tell whether I have enough things. It's super useful and I've grabbed, I've used it a lot. And, and you know, and again, you have, there's just lots of, the problem with rigging is there's lots of different ways of rigging and you need screws. I also, these are relatively inexpensive. Um, these are just little little stacks of, of lots of little screws that are necessary, that you may need somewhere. And any, my rule is basically if I can't find the screw, I order more. Like, you know, like I just order a whole bunch more like that'll never happen again. And so you end up with giant collections of them because they're not very expensive. And it, there's nothing worse than having a great rig and then having, uh, um, you know, having a great rig and then not being able to connect it because you're missing one screw or one Allen wrench is something that's happened to probably most of us. So, so, um, so just kind of think through that. Anyway, those are, those are some things at least to start the conversation. Absolutely. Mitchell? Your thoughts? Yeah, what was kind of cool is that watching the evolution of uh, all this add-on stuff to your uh, your rigs, um, I saw it happen when HD started coming out and people started putting matte boxes on their uh, their uh, production cameras, which mean you need a rod system to support the lenses. And then it just went on and on and on, monitors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I've lost track. I mean, funny thing is you go out on a big shoot with an array system, it might have an LF mini in there. It's about this big. Well, and <laughs> it's, it's where the camera you know, body lives, you know? I, I think that that's where what, what one of the things that happened is for a long time, cameras were their own thing. Like the camera 
camera had all the That's features right. and it had everything else out there. And we really have evolved to where people just said, I just need the, and, and it, that was partially came from the fact that they were broadcast cameras and there were film cameras and so on and so forth. And there was kind of a past thought process there. And then it, it really got down. I think Aerie was one, one of the first and Aerie and Red and a couple others to build this. I'm just going to give you a box that is the sensor. I'm going to make it as small a box as possible and how you build monitors and where you build monitors and all those things are up to you, you know, and, and that's how you've really gotten into these pretty complex rigs. Yeah, and, and the Mini LF, for example, is a very popular camera still, even though the Super 35 is happening, but all of them have some kind of attachment because everybody has a specific use case that requires add-on things, whether it's time code or secondary mm -hmm. audio or monitors and things like that. Going down to the other side, uh, when you get a DSLR camera, just like Alex said, the first thing you do when you buy a camera, uh, this happens to be a Sony ZVE10, just like Alice was just, uh, Alex was just showing, um, you got to put a cage on it. And the reason for that is, number one, protection of the camera, because these cameras can get dropped, and this, I've dropped this one a couple of times, um, and you need to have that ridge of uh, metal that's supporting it, as you can see along here. But it also provides... Uh, mounting points for things like cold shoes, uh, monitors, other other devices uh, on this one on the side. And this is a small rig, by the way. Um, I've got a nice little adapter that goes from the micro HDMI up to a full-size uh, HDMI connector. you got to do that because these things are sticking out the side of your DSLR camera and you need it. And then there's a ton of different little add-ons. For example, uh, Kessler makes a uh, an add-on um, stand that's part of the quick release system that allows you to place the camera on a level surface and not have to worry about it rolling around or doing things. That's the small version. Uh, this is the tilted version, excuse me, the, the uh, larger version, which gives you a little bit more support for a larger uh, box camera that you might have. So the idea here is um, outfitting your camera to be more stable, uh, have more mounting points than the manufacturer never thought of uh, adding, well, whether well, it's a cold shoe or other things that you need to have on your what, camera. What I'd say is the, the manufacturers have thought of it. They give you enough mounting points on the camera so that you can put other things, that you can attach something to it. Like The, the manufacturers just haven't bothered. I mean, I, there's a couple Sonys, like the Sony FX6 and a couple other, and, the, and to some degree the, the FX30, have a couple mounting they've added a couple extra mounting points but the reality is all we want is enough mounting points to put our cages on and then the other thing that you'll see this is just one version one not actually great version of this but cheese plates um, so you'll hear cheese plates they're they're not full of cheddar or uh or um <laughs> gouda although i will say that 36 month gouda is quite good but it won't work on your camera it gets sticky in, in, in the little pieces and nice. so um but the uh but these cheese plates are are plates that just let you kind of put a lot of gear on them. So a lot of times we attach those to the top of a, a camera and now we've got lots of services that we can kind of add to it and, and do it exactly. And again, what this allows you to do when you start rigging these out is it allows you to customize exactly the way you want this show to go. And what I find is that I rig things differently every single show. Like it's just like, oh, we want this here for this. I mean, you get to a point where 80% of it's the same, but a lot of times there's like these little nuances that let you have the monitor just where you want it and the controller just where you want it. Um, and you're adding this one extra converter and time code and other things that are that are actually there. 
And, and a oh. nice thing to compliment the folks at uh, Small Rig, for example. Here's the cage for my uh, ZVE-10. Notice that it put room for the battery to be able to open and close it even after the cage is on there. Every tiny little connector and thing is supported uh, by that particular uh, cage for that camera. So, you know, people like Small Rig, and uh, if you're going to go to the high-end Tilta, design around all of these things and it's amazing how fast they come out with these add-ons as soon as these cameras are released before we go to paul's question i just wanted to pop to one more thing you can never have enough holes and <laughs> mounting points it's, i can't tell you the number of times i've mounted something in one hole and realized oh i just need to move it one hole down because it's not fitting what i need for example uh maybe you have an external handle like this which is really useful i love this because it's swivelable and if i mount that on the left side of my camera right on the on the small rig cage it allows me to get a high angle or a low angle and the camera itself can be tilted to maintain its horizon this actually has an extra uh, hex wrench in the bottom of it that fits everything it uses, so they understand that. And things like extra batteries. Here's the small rig plate that I keep on the top. This is another thing where I normally keep it here, but if I use the sunshade, I have to move it three pieces over, three holes over on my rig, or it just won't fit. There's all these little uh, kind of fiddly things that you go through as you're learning to cageify your camera. Paul, take it away. Okay, you've seen the intermediate and advanced. Now we have the beginner. This is the ZV-1. I'm going to turn it on. I'm going to turn it on. You can see that it's got the small rig. It's got a nice uh, wood thing here. And uh, it has the cheese thing on the side and on this side. And then it comes with this grip. This is a pretty cool little grip. See, it'll, it goes into a tripod. And you can also uh, do like this or like this. So it, it gives you a number of different options. So there you have it, the beginner level ZV-1 Sony. There you go. Well, I think the point that we're all making is that the camera manufacturers understand that everybody has different use cases. They have different accessories. So they've created this system that allows you the maximum amount of flexibility in deciding what you need for your shoots. Maybe you have a wireless mic. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're connecting directly into um, the XLR adapter on the side of a Blackmagic 6K. So you don't want to have to deal with the 3.5 millimeter audio at all because you've adapted to XLR and you're going to be running balanced audio through the system. But somebody else may need to come in via some wireless receiver that has a 3.5 millimeter. So this is all about choice and flexibility and being able to build the rig that you need to get your work done. Um, I think that takes us to our questions. So Mitch, what have we got first? Jumping into questions, Samuel Nordvik in Norway asks, what types of quick release systems do you use for cameras and have you considered to switch to something else? Mitchell, start us off. Um, I like the Arca quick release. It's a standard that's uh, across a lot of different systems. But here's one of the gotchas is not all manufacturers uh, do exactly to spec. For example, a small rig Arca may not quite fit um, a, a Condor Blue Arca. Um, I have a bunch of Kessler ones, and those are the, bo the ones I've found to be the most um, consistent and most uh, uh, tight for the specification of uh, ARCA quick release. So that's what I like to use. I use it on my Sockler behind me. I use it on my uh, FX3 in front of me. And for my little uh, walk around 
uh, Sony ZV-E10, which also has that Kessler thing on the bottom. Paul Wallace. Well, I'm, hearing I'm going out on a limb here to see if my it's been so long since I've used the quick release. Let's see how quick it is. You have to turn this knob right here. So it's not very quick. That's what it takes to uh, disconnect. <laughs> That's a kind of a standard tripod uh, quarter 20 in the bottom of that, which is most of these things, most of the holes you see on these plates are, are standard quarter 20s. They've been around the industry forever. Alex? Yeah, I mean, on the higher end, dove plates are really nice. <laughs> so dove plates are a large groove. I'm trying to grab one here so I can... I, I don't have a picture of mine that I've used for other things, but but they, um, they're they fast and also very adjustable. So um, here's a here's a picture of a dove plate. Um, the, Arca, the Arca Swiss is what we use probably for a lot of the smaller stuff. Um, but when you start getting into larger cameras, um, you end up starting to do something more like this. So... Um, this dove plate allows you to basically you have you know obviously you have some mounts here, but once this is hooked to the camera, you 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 you, you lock it here, but you can move it back and forth um, a lot. You have a lot of travel, and the the reason that that's important is because a lot of times you need to balance a camera. And these these rigs, this dove plate is not something you put your EV10 on. It's something you put a larger camera on. So, um, but what it allows you to do is you have a lot, and you can get some of these plates can be very long, <laughs> you know, like the very long dove plates. And, um, and what you can do is you can move this back and forth. And the reason for that is as you start to build your rig, one of the things that's important is that if you think about your camera, you know, you have your, uh, you have your camera here, and you're on your tripod, when you let go of your, when you turn all the friction down on, this is how I balance a camera, is I turn all the friction off on my, on my, um, my tilt, and then, I, and then I set my camera, and I start moving it back and forth until that camera just wants to sit right there without any friction at all. It wants to sit flat because that means after you've done your rig, that whole camera has to sit and not want to pull forward or back. And the reason for that is, number one, it's much easier to operate. Um, so the camera's a lot easier to operate when it's balanced. Um, it doesn't want to pull down if you let go. or and it, it means that you can, it's kind of a, a really light touch for the operator to just move things up and down and around. And so so you're, you're balancing that camera. And in addition to that, it's much easier on the head. And so especially if you've got your near the edge of what the head can do or higher than what the head can do. It has to be balanced because otherwise a fluid head will literally start leaking fluid you know, because it's getting pulled down over long periods of time. So you're reducing the the um, the longevity of your head by not having it balanced. You can also turn that friction up and now you're reducing the the longevity of the of the brakes. So so there's a lot of things that you can do there. So having a balanced camera is really important. So having these longer Dove plates allow you to really slide that camera forward and back, especially when you're dealing with larger lenses, and really get that thing to be um, balanced correctly, uh, so that you can so that you can operate it better, but also so that all the equipment works for a longer period of time. And one of the trends I've seen is we're shooting on smaller cameras, particularly iPhones and things like that a lot. So they're making a lot of these things that used to be relatively large smaller and smaller. Here's the top of my monopod, and I have a little two rig set of micro little uh, locks. These actually come from small rig there. It's uh, 
hawk lock system. And so you have uh, your basic rig, snap your camera into that, and then you have two little things. I can put a light on one side and an iPhone cage, like the small rig cage on the other. And so I actually have both the camera and a light source rigged really small. And these are really robustly engineered. They have a, a really positive uh, spring lock on them. They hold really tightly. The receivers underneath the various things, whether it's a light or a camera bottom, are very small, but it's still very stable. So I'm really enjoying for the really quick run and gun iPhone stuff that I do, that Hawk Lock system that I hadn't run into before. Let's move to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, would the small rig line of products be what you use for a remote kit? Well, it's one of the predominant names. They're doing a ton. I'm not saying it's the only thing. There, you know, this is a very, very, very active space. There are more people shooting content than ever before. They're using phones. They're using larger cameras. So there's a lot of manufacturers who are trying to get into this space. But certainly, small rig is a very high quality, very highly engineered, and they come up with new products all the time, particularly as new devices come out that maybe need a different approach, like those very, very small uh, locks as opposed to the older style Manfrotto's. Alex, you had some thoughts. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people who make these. Um, wooden camera makes makes probably some of the higher end ones. So you have wooden camera, you have blue condor, which is, and if I was going to say, you know, if I was going to rank these based on my experience in quality. Now, I, I use small rig because I think the cost benefit is, is good. But I would say that Tilta is, oops, let's go with something else. Uh, Tilta is probably the most affordable. Tilta, if I can spell, is probably the most affordable. Then small rig, then blue condor, or condor blue, condor blue, which condor blue, and then wooden camera is kind of the next. And then there's some other, you know, esoteric ones after that. But of all the major ones, I would say that this is, um, you know, affordability goes this way and quality goes that way. Um, so, and you're making decisions about, you know, what what makes sense for you financially. I find that the um, the Tilta stuff is where I started and it's pretty good, but it, I did find that I had a wider range of options and I thought the build quality was just a little bit better with the, with the small rig. Um, the Condor Blue stuff I look at and the build quality is really good, um, but it's a little bit more uh, expensive. And so I've made choices over what I can, what I should use for the, the smaller rigs that I have. And then of course, some of the bigger rigs that we've used, we were using wooden camera and again, some, some esoteric brands that, that build some really compli complicated rigs. Mitch? I find that the Kessler are the best machined and built uh, because they consistently uh, have better tolerances and stay closer to like the Arca Swiss uh, specs. It's worked for me. I have Tilta on my FX3. Uh, I like the Tilta ecosystem. Um, Condor Blue, lots of great stuff. And the small rig is sort of the low end for me because they're not quite well manufactured, but they're very convenient and very reasonably priced. And uh, don't try to mix your... Uh, uh, yeah, don't your, mix and match. Don't mix and match because the these things aren't That's the work. biggest thing is that the system, I, I consciously picked small rig for what I was doing for what I needed. And now I just buy, I just, I don't really consider a lot of other options because like, for instance, the rails, the 15 millimeter rails on the small rig don't quite fit most of the other ones. And so, so there, you know, there's a bunch of things that these don't all, the tolerances are, again, they're, they're for their own stuff. They're not paying attention to anybody else's stuff. 
And so you have to be, they're not part of a, they're not a very good mix and match system. Um, so you have to kind of, you do have to kind of make a decision. I, I haven't used, I've used Kessler cranes, which are really great. Uh, I just haven't used a lot of the, the Kessler. I didn't even know that they made the rigging until Mitch told me a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so I didn't even know that they did that. So it's good. Another thing uh, I think we haven't talked about yet is longevity, which is how long are you going to be keeping this rig together as a unit? I've noticed that I tend to swap my phone out every two years. And so I'm asking myself, is who's most likely to come out quickest with a cage for that that fits in my system? And my answer right now is small rig tends to be really fast as soon as a new iPhone or as soon as a new camera uh configuration comes out, they're probably going to be one of the first to market. And that becomes important as you're trying to say, do I change? I'm, I'm changing a lot more than just my phone when I change my phone. I'm going to be changing this entire ecosystem around it of the cage and maybe lens and adapters the, and the, so, a bunch of other stuff. The camera one is the, I mean, the, the, the iPhone one is the, the hardest one because with small rig, because it, I do change it typically because I'm on a show about Apple, I ten, tend to change it every every year. So I have a lot of these laying around from older versions of it. But this is Tom Ferguson got us hooked on these. This is the small rig version of this that has a lot of your external mounts that we would have normally, um, but it fits on your phone and gives you that. that so there's rigging, rigging for your phone. And you can also get, you know, for that, you can get little handles. So these are all stuff that you can rig onto that as well. So, yeah. Yeah. All sorts of possibilities here. Paul Wallace, continue. Yeah. Another little bonus from small rig. They gave you this little toolkit that uh, it, it, there's actually a case within a case. So I got to, so I've got to take it out and there it is. You've got uh, yeah, I think that's all the, the tools I, you need for your small the, rig. I think that's the same one that I showed a little earlier. The um, this is I just don't put it back in its case. Which I just carry it around like a pocket. Like the the one thing I will say about this is that the I have another set of these of most of these on my own with longer handles and and everything else because getting this is a pretty inconvenient tool for many of the rigging that you need to do. Um, so it's convenient that you can put it in your case as a backup. But if you're using this all the time, you're not using it well because there's better, there's much better tools that have longer access points and other things that you can get into that will be much easier to use and, and do quickly. So if you're working quickly, you're going to get real Allen wrenches and real, you know, like things that will allow you to build these up, especially if you're in a shop. But even if you're not, this is my SOS. Like this is like I need something right now. Another thing that I've used a lot of, because it, it's not, it's really inconvenient to use this all the time. It's really slow. And so when you get into production, time is money. <laughs> you know, so you want to have the right tools for that. The other thing that I don't have with me right now, but I, I've used a lot when I'm on set, when I'm building rigs, is I have a tread. You know, Leatherman makes a tread. It looks like a bracelet. And it's got most of them built into the bracelet. And it is TSA approved. I've used it. I've flown with it. And, um, and you can pull it off. And again, not what you want to use all the time, but having something on your wrist that you can make most of the adjustments is useful. And to Alex's point about being able to work fast, I have a, a small hand ratchet that has a set of bits that do all these. And boy, it's so much nicer to be able to just go ratchet, 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 mm -hmm. and it's tightened rather than trying to figure those L. It, 
And, and a lot of them I have, you know, we use um, power drills and power screwdrivers a lot for these. We just turn their their um, their brake point Friction down right really, yeah. really low so that they'll they'll start as, as they get to something. So you're, you're not making them do any work that in a way that would damage something. They'll stop almost immediately. But they do, like if you're starting to put these together really quickly, um, having these, and you can get precision ones. I have a precision screw, powered screwdriver that really is the, all the little... Um, little bits and pieces, and that really speeds things up when you're when you're kind of moving through things. Mitchell, you wanted to come back and make another yeah, comment? Yeah, Tilta on their quarter 20 uh, screws, they put these little, mag- come on, Mitch, uh, put these little magnetic uh, things if you don't happen to have a quarter so you can tighten them up. That's handy. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting about Small Rig is that a lot of their user base does the actual designing of these cages and add-ons. They accept uh, specifications from uh, user base people, and they manufacture to suit. Let's move to the next question. Next question in from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. How do you account for car mounting or any shaking while moving that may jar loose components? Car mounting, mobile rigs, a big industry uh, behind that for Hollywood, of course. And there's all sorts of bars and suction uh, cups. And it's, it's a whole different thing. Let's have Alex dive into some of this. Yeah, the best place to look for it is suction, you know, car mounting suction or suction cups at filmtools.com. So go to filmtools.com. They have they sell all of them in one place. There's like a whole page that you'll see there. So there's a couple things you want to think about when you think about car mounts is number one is your the ones that if you're putting on something that matters, you're going to need to get a car mount with a pump. So these are suction cups that have a little button on the side. And what you're going to do is you're going to push that button in and it's going to it's going to suck all the air out of it. Um, you got to be careful on an older car because it will take the paint off of it if you're not careful. If on newer cars, it's fine. But on older cars, you have to be kind of careful of this. But the, the main thing is if you have a smooth surface, it will or a glass surface, that thing will just become part of it. And it is I, I haven't tested it, but I think it would in some cases dent the car before it came off the surface. Um, and so these are these are um, you can get them in lots of different diameters. And obviously, the larger diameter, the more it's going to grab onto, but it also makes it harder because you need a, a, a longer surface for it to sit on. So we have smaller ones and larger ones that we use. And then the other thing you want to look at is what kind of mount is it? Typically, it's a quarter 20 or a three eighths. Um, typically, I like to try to get three eighths on those. The smaller ones will be quarter 20. Um, but the three eight sixteen is the one that I generally prefer um, to kind of to, to mount those. And that's going to um, uh, those are again, those are really, really uh, solid mounts. A lot of times you're going to use multiple mounts. And so if you have a camera, let's say you have a side of a door, a lot of times you're not going to put a, you're not going to put a camera, you know, hanging off with one mount. You're going to put a bunch of mounts and then you're going to rig that camera to all of them. And that's going to give it a lot more. If you look at a lot of camera mounts on cars, you'll see three, two, three, four mounts that are going on the car. Um, And that's because the problem is a lot of these tend to be, if you think about it here, if you think about it looking from the side, a lot of these don't hold as well when they go one direction or another. So if they're sliding, they'll tend to want to slide a little bit more than they will want to come straight off. And so you want to create something that's going to that's going to be able to move back and forth with that. Um, so those are the things you want to think about when you think about rigging to a car. Generally, we use a lot of suction cups um, because they, they also do the least amount of damage. If you start, you know, 
gripping onto things. I mean, another thing you want to think about with rig- rigging is also just how, what are you going to grip onto and how are you going to do it and how are you going to do it without damaging the, the item? And so, um, you know, we use a lot of things like cartellinis, but those are then padded and a lot of other things to kind of keep it, you know, from damaging the, the, the work that we're doing. Oftentimes that can be an expensive part of production. And I've spent, I've written, I've written a lot of checks for things that we thought were going to work. <laughs> you know, so, so, um, you know, the, so it's, and a minor little chip can be, in, in my case, the last one was fourteen hundred dollars. It was a little piece of paint this big. So, so anyway, so that was, so yeah. Just keep that in mind. Paul Wallace. Yeah, I tried a lot of these, and a lot, most of them went right back to Amazon until I found the Leapaya car phone mount video recording universal magic arm suction car phone holder mount, which goes on your glass. And it's Lima Echo Echo Papa India Yankee Alpha Lipaya. Look it up on Amazon. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm never comfortable with just a suction cup rig. And so I'm always doing, if I do that, and I've had to do it on cars and other things, I want also as much of a cage as I can build around it. And if you look up Hollywood process car and process trailers, two ways that they do it in Hollywood, a process trailer, they actually put the car on a flatbed. And so the car isn't actually under its own power and wheels. But on a process car that's built around with rails, they have a lot of mounting points. Even if you can't do that, a long cage, Cable, um, aircraft type cable hooked to the mirror, uh, you know, side mirror or something where if your suction fails, the camera is not going to get totally destroyed unless you're working with a sacrificial camera and you're planning for that. But um, you never know when they're going to hit just the right bump and that suction is going to be lost. So to me, that is a primary, but it also has to have secondary and maybe tertiary mounting to keep the devices from getting messed up. Paul, do you have a last thought before we move yeah, on? Yeah, the Lee Pie has never fallen off my windshield, but I wouldn't recommend you park it in direct sunlight. Yeah, well, you know, everybody has their own risk tolerance. You know, if you're working with a GoPro mounting in the car, it's not a big deal. If you're working with a Blackmagic 6K and it's your primary money earner in your life, uh, you're going to treat it a little bit differently because you just can't afford to make the mistake. It'll put you out of business. So anyway, next uh, next question. Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois, asks, can Alex share the link to his erector set that he shared? Alex, you might yeah, I just dropped it in. So I dropped it into the, uh, I'll put it in the panel view too, but I dropped it into the general chat as well. Um, this is the the Matthews uh, micro grip. Um, so Matthews, it's msegrip.com slash product slash micro grip. But if you just do Matthews micro grip, you'll see um, versions of that. And um, one of my biggest regrets when I had to close up my company and, and sell everything, there were just boxes and boxes and boxes. I grabbed a couple things out of it, but I didn't grab one of those boxes because I didn't realize how expensive they were. I didn't think about it because, you know, we just bought lots of them for our kits. And um, there's probably a couple thousand dollars of, of micro grips sitting in there. So um, they're really, really great. They have these little bases, um, super useful for the kind of like just putting things into the just the right place. So I would highly recommend them. Yeah, you you hear some names over and over again, and Matthews is one of those names out of Hollywood. They've been around in the grip business for decades, and they really make a ton of excellent products. And they recently have been getting into this smaller and smaller stuff. I mean, it used to be once upon a time that a, um, I don't know if I have a grip head around me, a standard size grip head. Oh, here's, here's some. You know, grip head to me was always this kind of thing. It was a relatively large thing. It went on the end of a C-stand. Well, 
suddenly you can find much smaller versions of the same thing because these rigs are getting lighter weight. So you're buying kind of a new generation of grip gear designed for lighter weight, more agile, fits into smaller areas, and you can rig more things with it. So it's just how the industry is evolving. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana, has a question. What are your thoughts on half cages that try to preserve access to some of the ergonomics designed into the camera body? Alex, start us off. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there definitely some cameras lend themselves towards cages and some don't. A lot of the box cameras are really built around it, and it's easy to build a rig. Um, but you do end up like the the FX30 that I have is a half rig, um, so it's just got a kind of an L that go, or maybe a U that goes around it uh, and leave some of those over because it'd just be really hard to put a cage there. I'm sure that they made that decision. Um, the half cages ha- are better than nothing. Um, definitely. Uh, you just have a little less access, but I think that it does. Um, we see those a lot as well. Um, it's just, a, uh, I, I prefer full cages when, when there's one available, I'll always get a full cage, but a half cage is something that, um, I will get occasionally, uh, if that's all that's available. Paul, uh, Mitch Hill, Mitch Hill. Alex, uh, if you want, you can get a full tilt cage for your FX30 because the FX30 share is the same body with the FX3. I'm, I'm already committed. Uh, he's committed to it. <laughs> no, I'm already uh, committed to, to to my system, so I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The other thing is that it makes sense, Roscoe, to your question, because sometimes you just want the bottom to add a few extra uh, uh, threads to it. So you'll see them out on the bottom and leave all the stuff on the top and vice versa, like a top part, a bottom part. Sometimes you can buy uh, both of them so you can add it later on and have a full cage. Uh, Paul Wallace. Yeah, the uh, ZV-1, Sony ZV-1, very unergonomic, so a full full cage is recommended because it adds a lot of ergonomics, and, yeah. and it, it's very easy to grip. I love this wood, wood panel touch here. <laughs> Probably taking a, a little note from Wooden Camera, who has a lot of those kind of, they feel really good in your hand. Uh, let's go to the next question. Art Aldrich from New York, New York, looking for someone to make a custom 19 millimeter to 15 millimeter rod support adapter with a six and a half inch drop. Any ideas? Alex? Yeah, I haven't seen the six and a half inch drop. So I think that what I'd probably end up doing, the, the, there's adapters out there. So the problem is, is that a lot of the bigger systems are all going to run on a 19 millimeter and this, and our little systems that I, that I'm using are using a 15 millimeter. Um, these are the, these are the, this is the, I don't know if I have a 19 millimeter really easily accessible, but the, I had a 15 millimeter run here somewhere, but anyway, so, um, the, uh, so the, a lot of times you'll have ones they're wider apart typically the 19 millimeters and then they're bigger obviously these are, these are the rod, rod sizes so you have one that is a 19 millimeter then you'll have one that's closer together that's a little smaller it's a 15 millimeter and that's how people will convert those between the two systems what what to get a drop down to have that drop i think that what you're going to want to do is have a 19 millimeter um, that just has quarter 20s or th- or three eighths on, on the across it and then you're going to rig something that goes down and then put another so it's, it's really a converter that you'll build pieces of using different pieces to grab onto those as opposed to someone that's going to build one all in one piece next question Next one in from Graham Codwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. When adding a video camera to a tripod, I prefer a ball to a flat plate as it's much easier to get level, in my opinion. What does the panel think? Alex. 
Yeah, for most of the professional, um, almost all the professional tripods we use, we have ball heads. Uh, I don't have a picture of one right now, but a ball head basically, in, so when you're buying less expensive tripods, you're just going to have something that sits on the tripod. Now, my smaller tripods all do, don't have ball heads. And the reason for that is that what comes without the ball head is oftentimes a you get a rod that goes up. So you can adjust that, do fine adjustment on the camera up and down by up to a foot um, that you can just kind of move it up and down. And so that last little bit of just getting the adjustment, you're not messing with all the, the problem without that rod, you're messing with the legs to try to get a certain height. The one exception to that is a hot pod, which is a now owned by Sackler. Well, O'Connor used to make it, and I think it's now a Sackler hot pod. The hot pod is a pneumatic center that goes up. It has a, it has a ball head and a pneumatic um, thing that'll go up about two feet. And the only danger of that is don't put your head over it when you open it up and there's not a camera on it because it's got a lot of upward force. <laughs> we haven't lost anybody there, but it's a couple close yeah, Put moments. your eye out with that. Yeah, you know, put more than your eye out. Don't put, take your whole jaw off your, <laughs> off your face. And so, so it's, a, it's a really, uh, it's really powerful because it's designed to move. We, we, we use that one to move teleprompters with big cameras, with big lenses up and down seamlessly. And so the reason that that's important is, is that you really want to make adjustments for the, um, you know, you have a, a, a VIP and you want to get it just right, but messing with the legs or doing anything else would be, you, you really, the next step is a jib or something like that. So anyway, it's a great, the, the hot pods, I had a couple of them for a long time. And they're really, really useful for that. But the littler ones, I use these little rods back and forth, and then you kind of give up. Most of the time, you kind of give up the ball head. The ball heads come typically in 100 mil, uh, 75 millimeter, 100 millimeter, 150. I think it's 150 millimeters, the largest ones that I've used or seen. Um, but the, the most common one that we see the most is a 70, or I'm sorry, the 100 millimeter ball head for most things or what we see under, you know, with heads less than $15,000. <laughs> you know, when you go to heads less than $1,000, you, you see 75 millimeters um, pretty often. And what that allows you to do is you take your, it has a level on it. And you, you have a little, you have something either, it's, a, it's either a, a grip or, or, or a handle. You loosen it and you can kind of rock your whole camera into being level and then you tighten it back up again. And, and usually that, that level has to be, up, of course, you t typically have it on the tripods, you know, the tripods level, whether the cameras or not is up to you. So anyway, those are the, that's the thing. Um, again, for most professional things that we do, um, the, the, the ball heads are, are prefer preferable in 99% of the cases. Mitchell? Uh, like the flat plate, uh, behind me is a Sockler Flowtech. It's a newer type of uh, uh, tripod that you can get. They're kind of expensive, but what they're doing now is they're placing them in a cup, and the cup is uh, very so that's, movable. That's the ball head. So it's, the... it's really not a ball head. It's a flat plate uh, with, the, with, the, with the thing out. And it doesn't any adjustment at the bottom? I mean, it's, I, mean I guess if it, if it has... No, you just lift the legs up and down. And because there's no uh, pin where you have to unscrew the, uh, the head, um, it can go all the way down to uh, crabbing level. So mm -hmm. it's okay. kind of interesting, uh, just different, and you got to get used to it because I'm used to the old-fashioned kind. Mm -hmm. But uh, the flat head has all the things that Alex was talking about. It's got lit uh, uh, bar... Uh, levels and things like that built into it so you can get it pretty What's level. That? What's that? Bubble levels. What's it called? Bubble levels. Pardon me? What's it called again? What's the brand? It's a Flowtech. It's a newer Flo version of uh, Sockler. I think they're switching to them. Mm -hmm. Paul Wallace. Okay, I'm using a ball head for my Insta360 link and I'm going to attempt to show it, show it to you if I can. It's over. Mm, you need to tilt up. Tilt up. Okay. There you go. Anyway, uh, 
And I think that we're probably that there's a distinction here of video ball video uh, ball heads and still camera ball heads. So what I think Paul's showing here there is it a, is there it is yeah it's a, there it is uh, and yeah. uh, as you, as you can see it's got a notch in it so you have to be careful where you yeah. position yeah, the so, notch in your so ball they, head if again, you want to tip it up and down. Yeah, related to this, this is typically more of a, we use it for our video cameras, but that's typically more of a, vid, a still camera thing. So a lot of still cameras have ball heads that you can really move it up and down and around and they're, but they're not really manageable as far as a video camera because you can't really, they're not a fluid head. So, so there are a lot of ball heads. Usually when you see the kind of ball head that Paul's showing there, you're, that's, that's really designed for a still camera or something that's going to remain stationary all the time. And they make little ones of those and they make very big ones. Um, and, uh, those are, uh, and we, a lot of times we use them for monitors that attach to our cheese plates and everything else. And so, so those are little ball heads that are really more of a still camera ball head or a utility ball head as opposed to what we were talking about before with these, um, these larger heads. Um, uh, the ball mounts are, the, are a, a mount to the tripod for a fluid head um, that we would use for, for video capture. Yeah, most of these go on a 3-8 pin and they screw onto the top of a tripod flat plate and then you have the ball head to then. And the small ones, I use them all the time for small monitors and stuff like that. They're, they're all useful. You can see that everything scales up and down and the basic idea infinite adjustability is just as smart for a small light that you want to change its direction on top of a lighting stand as it is for a big rig with a teleprompter where you want to be able to hold something at the top, unscrew the ball head adjustment, get it flat with the bubble level, tweak it down, and then you know your camera base is parallel and perpendicular. Uh, let's go to the next question. And it's from Alejandro Guerrero from Madrid, Spain. Hello, this is Alejandro Guerrero. And regards from, uh, oh, he's saying hi from Madrid, Spain. Uh, my question about rigging is, I bought a Blackmagic Studio Pro 6K recently, which I love, but the camera has a big problem. It has no holes at all. Nothing to attach a camera tracker. Uh, typically, in that kind of circumstance, there's a couple of ways that we've solved it in the past, one of which is to mount things to whatever its support is. Uh, a lot of the tripods that we're talking about, the bigger ones, have some sort of a 3.8 or a quarter 20 or something like that on the side. And through the use of an arm or something like that, you might be able to do uh, another arm that attaches something else. Alex, what have you run into as a way to solve this? Yeah, I mean, cheese plates across the bottom or, you know, now it does have two big holes. If you look at the if you look at the picture that was placed here, it's got, um, you know, basically underneath it, it has rod mounts. So those rod mounts are your, that's where you're going to typically start to build everything out. So from those rods, you can attach almost anything. So when, when you don't have anything, this is because it's really designed as a studio camera, not a film camera, and they're not really thinking about you using it as that type of um, camera there. Uh, but the, um, the, what you want to think about there is you're going to either attach it on a plate to the to the camera and so um you'll an, end up adding mounts below it and then you'll build up around it or you're going to use those rods and those rods will be the basis of what you attach things to 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 put that tracker on yeah, I'll also make one little point, too. The more things you attach to the camera, the more unwieldy it becomes for any kind of handheld use or stuff like that. And in a studio camera circumstance, for me, I often outboard onto a separate stand things like my monitor um, so that I don't have it sitting on top of the camera, adding more weight and making me look up. I'd rather be able to glance from the camera just to the side to see my reference monitor on a stand to the side. So all of these rigging things are to allow 
allow you to work the way that you find the most comfortable and convenient when you're shooting. Next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado asked, short right angle cords, 3D printed camera doors that incorporate cords. Alex? You know, I, I just ordered some more sprigs. I've been using the sprigs as a, as a way to do this. These are little things that go into your quarter 20s and then they have, you can run cords through them. And, you know, they're not super cheap, but for the trouble, I, I'd rather just order the sprigs. <laughs> you know, and there's a lot of cable management stuff that comes with people who are building these. And I, I just, from a time perspective, I haven't decided, I've decided that it's not worth me building, you know, like printing lots of little things to, to do that. Also, my... My son has become exceptional at printing things, and so now the printer runs all the time. So I have to, I have to, I have to get in, into the queue to print anything, which has slowed things down. Let's go to the next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri. What special thought is needed for rigging a 180 or 360 camera? Alex, very little rigging for the 360 camera because no matter where you rig, you'll see it. So, so that becomes a problem with um, 360 cameras. Uh, for 180 cameras, it's just a matter of staying behind that 180 plane. And there's definitely things that we do with the 180 cameras um, that that allow us to, um, again, outboard power. Um, you know, a lot of things like that. You know, because one of the things that you'll have is, oh, I want to shoot for a while. Um, you're going to want to be able to put it on a larger power brick and, you know, that type of thing to make it all work. So there are some things you have to think about for the 180 lens, but it's just a matter of staying behind the plane. Um, but the t most typical things that we add for the 180, again, the 360s, there's very little you do except for maybe attaching it to the bottom of the tripod and then running services up to it. So we've done a lot of where we have power and it sits right below the camera. Usually there's a blind spot below the camera that's about a foot um, in diameter and we'll put all the, you know, foot to two feet un under, right under the camera is not viewable. And so a lot of times under there, we'll put all of our GAC, you know, so we'll have um, power. Um, um, sometimes for our Ozos, we had SDI relays, we had, um, you know, uh, fiber relays, tons of stuff underneath it. Um, and then we run it very carefully up the tripod where it's not going to be seen or up the, uh, the, the, at least the stand that we're using. And then for the, um, for the 180s, we have uh, batteries are a big, a big piece of it. If we're going to hook an ambisonic mic to it, if we're going to do a bunch of other things like that, we, those are things that we might be putting behind it. And then oftentimes we, we want to move, like, for instance, if you're using ambisonic, one of the problems we have with cameras is they tend to have a fan. And so they tend to make a little bit of noise. And so we, we have to move, we have to rig it so that the mic is a little bit further away. And sometimes we even put a little, we, we've been, I put a little block um, to try to cut down some of that sound um, from the camera. And that's why, by the way, uh, one of the reasons you see some cameras, some of these 180 cameras with a big rig around them, it's a, it's what we call a blimp. I mean, it's designed to um, keep the camera sound completely in the camera, in, you know, in a box so that it doesn't affect the record. Looks like we're heading to, oh, I'll just make one more point about that. For me, I see a 360 or a 180 shot, and I don't know why, but my mind always goes to reflections. It, it drives me nuts because I, it's hard enough to police a standard 4x3 or 16x9 frame to look at anything that's reflecting back to crew movement, uh, things like that. Boy, when I get into 100, 180 degrees, and I would think it'd be even worse in 360. Trying to hide crew and the rest of the people that are involved in a shoot in a 360 must be a nightmare. I don't even know where you, I guess you'd have to remote everything not to have uh, people getting distracted by in their 360 view, seeing people who are helping you run this shoot. Uh, so I always consider there's a, there's a whole bunch of extra effort that has to go in when your camera is seeing everything that's going on, unless that's part of the shoot and you want that there. Next question. Paul Wallace asks, uh, rigging for an iPhone. 
Yeah, we, listen, it's a bigger and bigger topic, and we're doing more and more of it. And I think I've said on here a couple of times, I'm shooting probably 50 to 60% of the work that I'm doing for even corporate customers. I'm shooting on an iPhone now. It is a specialist thing. Thankfully, there are more and more tools available all the time. But, Paul, did you want to specifically uh, mention some things for your question? Yeah, I, I have this uh, Insta360 Flow, which could be a replacement for the Insta360 Link. I'm not going to drag it out because I've put you through enough demos today, but uh, it's a pretty neat uh, device and it gives you uh, stabilization and a built-in tripod, a built-in extender. You can use it as a selfie stick or a webcam. Pretty neat Alex, device. Oh, excuse me. Alex yeah, Thompson. the um, yeah. As far as reading to the to the uh, specifically to the question is, this is the thing that I think it works the best. This is the small rig, uh, rig mount, and um, it just opens up at the end like this. You slide it in and you close it, and um, it also takes it. It has uh, mounts for moment lenses. So if you have those little anamorphic moment lenses, or you want longer or shorter lenses, they'll just pop right on there. And you have um, both a cold shoe mount right here, as well as a series of quarter twenties on almost every direction. So um, if you're trying to if you're trying to rig something to your camera, in my opinion, this is the this is the solution. And they they come for every iPhone made in the last three or four years. Yeah, that's what I use as well. The only thing I don't like about it is you have to take off any bumper cases you have on your phone because it's machined right to the body dimensions of the phone. And to slip it in, you have to take off any extra stuff. Um, that takes us to the close of things. Thank you so much for watching today. We appreciate you being here every day to do that. Tomorrow, we're doing custom computing with Puget Systems, uh, high-end computers for production. So that should be fascinating. Don't forget, Saturday, uh, we do two hours of Q&A. And Sunday is our introspection day around this kind of stuff. So thank you for being here. Big thanks. Producers, the people who asked the questions today, you did a great job as always, to the panelists who show up and offer their expertise for free every single day here at Office Hours. This show is impossible without people who are on the panel, all the people asking questions, and it certainly is impossible without our back-end crew, the people who are behind the scenes, who are spending their time making sure that all this signal flow is done perfectly. It's a small army back there. They arrive digitally from literally all over the planet every day and help make this show possible. Thank you all for watching. Thank you all for participating in Office Hours. Don't forget, After Hours runs 24-7. After we finish, we will see you tomorrow. Thanks for being here. Now i got to figure out where I put everything. i got to put it all back. <laughs> Pulled all the stuff out. I had to put a little table. I was lucky I was coming like... back from a shoot, so I had everything kind of just a disaster. <sighs> I realized, I realized right before, I was like, where is all the stuff? And I realized that a whole bunch of stuff's in the garage and I didn't have time to run for the kids. You, you know what? One of the problems with buying all this stuff is that you end up with a box full of spare yeah. parts of different things. You know, the, the the best thing is I got I got a U-line shelf in the garage that has all the little trays and then I have all the little things printed on the front of what they all are and it's really useful. It's not very expensive. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's good. I don't have that kind of free time. I have a whole tray of, well, what happens is when you own a company that had 20 of those going down the wall and you just keep two of them <laughs> when, you're, when you're doing it. Then you just, I didn't have to buy it. I just, I just had to carry it. Getting it to the house was hard, but, but outside of that, it was, it was easy. Thanks, everybody, for being there. Yeah, I got to put this back in the bags. So underutilized. Yeah, so go. underutilized. They call that a vlogging stick, Paul. Yeah.
See you, buddy.